please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. On May 14, 1973, America's first space station and first crewed research laboratory in space blasted off on the last Saturn V rocket. This was Skylab. Following a near-catastrophic design issue requiring in-orbit repairs by astronauts shortly after launch, Skylab's crew conducted hundreds of experiments and captured nearly a quarter of a million images of the sun with the onboard solar observatory. Efficient, safe, and comfortable interactions between the machinery and the human astronauts onboard Skylab was made possible through the research and designs of the Human Factors Engineers at Marshall Space Flight Center. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I speak with retired NASA Human Factors Engineer Jack Stokes about Skylab on this very special episode of Dare to Explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. Originally from the state of North Carolina, I was born there, and we lived in several communities um, throughout the state. Um, at age uh, 12, in the sixth grade at least, I decided I really wanted to be involved in the space program, and I really wanted to be involved with the astronauts. And I knew I would never be an astronaut because I wore glasses from age two and I knew that was out, but I figured there ought to be something going on where people like me could go and work with astronauts, and I discovered that was something called human factors engineering. I was not a very good student, and this is a a point, a a thing, a, a God thing, that you don't have to be a great student to make it in this world if you put your mind to it and stay focused on it, and that's effectively what I did. I, I took the uh, classes for going into college and uh, wanted to be an aeronautical engineer. Uh, When I got to my university uh, at North Carolina State University where I graduated from, uh, they didn't have a uh, human factors program, so I chose to get a uh, major in psychology and a minor in aeronautical engineering and then went into graduate school there. (laughs) Uh, Interestingly enough, I got to one final class that I couldn't get for a semester or so later was going to be taught, and the opportunity came up to go to work at the Marshall Space Flight Center, uh, and, well, I just said, I'll hit that class later on. <laughs> Clo- literally <laughs> close enough for government work. <laughs> right. And uh, so I, I, I really had not applied to Marshall, didn't even know about Huntsville or Marshall Space Flight Center. I'd been trying to get to either um, Johnson Space Center, which at the time was called Manned Spacecraft Center, 
and then um, also Langley Research Center, which is really right up the road from us. Um, my my uh, interest was not appreciated there in either one of those places, uh, but the opportunity arose for a human factors person at Marshall Space Flight Center because Dr. Von Brown, being the astute and intelligent person that he was, realized that uh, he, if he always had wanted to go to Mars and he needed some group in his organization that he had some control over that could look at that piece of it and not just totally depend on another center like Houston. And so he had a, a group of people down here that were looking at the, at the manned side of the thing from the 10,000-foot level rather than being down at Johnson at the one-foot level. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, he pulled together key people, and one of which he needed was a human factors person. Can you explain what a human factors engineer is? I would love to explain what a human factors engineer is. Uh, the term human factors uh, is the factor in a design of the human. When you look at the human as a subsystem within a system, uh, it has input and it has output and it affects other pieces of the system. And so what you want to do is optimize human uh, performance, mainly because it's a safe issue, a safety issue, and secondly, it's very expensive to put people in space, <laughs> and my interest was really only in space flight, so in the microgravity world, and uh, so we were brought up to believe that uh, the, the human is a box uh, with an arrow in and out and going into the rest of the system. Uh, not, It's not very... Uh, loving or subjective, but quite objective. And so the idea is that you can train the human, you can um, provide the human with skills that the human will perform as you want it to, and then you can build the equipment to which he's interfacing with, he or she uh, is interfacing with, such that uh, it doesn't cause any issues with the with the uh, human, so that all works uh, in concert. When you got your degree with psychology and also engineering, you kind of, you literally were sort of making one <laughs> one degree out of two degrees. Uh, well, that was the idea. It was a middle ground for, for what I knew about human factors engineering. It was the only way from where I my school that I could afford to go to right. <laughs> uh, as an in-state in student. Uh, uh, it's the only place I could find a way to make that happen. Yeah. And it worked out perfectly. The nice thing about getting here is, uh, you know, I started talking to him when I'm short one, one uh, class back at NC State for my master's, and they said, well, we'll get to that later, but first uh, we need to train you, and we need to train you as a... Uh, NASA uh, test subject, pressure-suited test subject. So <laughs> they sent me out to Miramar uh, Naval Air Station, Top Gun, and that's where we did suit training, high-altitude chamber training at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And uh, so I learned to wear space suits. I learned to uh, deal with uh, flying in the zero-G plane, uh, which, which we did. We flew out of Wright-Patterson for a long time, and then the Air Force got tired of fooling with NASA and said, you guys get your own airplane. So NASA got a uh, 
another KC-135 plane, and they flew out of Houston. So I was a test subject for many, many flights. If you figure 30 seconds per parabola of pure zero gravity in the airplane, and you've got to do, deal with a two-and-a-half load pullout, a two-and-a-half G pullout at the other end of that, and you go back through that cycle over and over again. Uh, if you add up all the, the pure zero gravity time and figure uh, per out that a uh, orbit around the Earth takes about 90 minutes, I have equivalent of maybe two-and-a-half equivalent zero gravity orbits of, of zero gravity. You basically were kind of a, a, a little bit of a guinea pig. Exactly. But, but, and, and this was done be, so that you had a frame of reference to know if you were designing for the human in space, you needed to know what that f- seemed like, what that felt like, right? Exactly. You're right. There are two pieces of that. One is I had to understand I was going to be required to be uh, involved with design of spacecraft. And so I had to understand myself uh, what was going on. But I also needed to, un- to uh, prepare that I would be some, something useful to the program that they are paying the bucks for. Effectively, I was involved as a test, test subject for trying things that uh, we didn't know about. Uh, at, at that time, when I came in, we were flying Apollo, and we knew that the human could last in space for about a week. But that's all we knew. We didn't know what's going to happen in a month, what's going to happen in six months to the human. Von Braun always wanted to go to Mars, even in, from his childhood, childhood, he wanted to go to Mars. And so his spacecraft that he designed, in his mind, all were designed to go to Mars. Uh, the moon, okay, but let's go to Mars. And so he wanted that to be something that uh, we could learn from, and even though the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston was challenged or targeted or uh, tasked to do that, that kind of work, Von Braun himself wanted to do that. When, when I arrived here, they had created a little requirements document, uh, Marshall Standard 267A, which was a set of requirements that were, we figured that probably somebody ought to use if they were in space to do design work, but it wasn't very good. And I was not involved in the creation of that, but it was based on the, uh, the uh, Army's uh, Mill Standard 1472, which is a human factors document for all the tri-services. So it was a start, but uh, what our job was to, to actually find out what the specific uh, amount the human could do or handle or um, operate in an environment was the minimum minimal environment uh, lighting uh, acoustics uh, heat uh, what's going to be acceptable and um, and then at the same time we were trying to figure out how do we need to design the hardware such that when the human comes to play on it he's not going to break it <laughs> uh, we found that uh, when we were doing design work we would say uh, let's uh, let's make it foolproof. We're gonna make it uh, gorilla proof, and then let's go one step further, make it astronaut proof, because <laughs> we knew they were gonna break it in, in space. In the microgravity environment, you can really load up uh, something. Uh, if you stop and think about it, uh, if you were to go and say release a bolt uh, that's in a piece of equipment that's quite torqued down and you float up to it and you put your little ratchet wrench on it uh, with your socket 
and you twist, that's what's going to happen. You go around and the bolt stays where it is. So we had to figure out ways of tying the human down so they wouldn't <laughs> float away. At the same time, uh, permit uh, these, those loads to be something that he, in fact, could break or break apart, especially in spacesuits. Spacesuits are horrible things to work in. If you can imagine putting on a welder's mitt and, uh, and, uh, and uh, the welder's outfit and putting a mask on, like a welder does, and then try to operate that way, it is tough. And that's basically what it's like to work in a spacesuit. The gloves are very um, large, and, and, and you have air in them because the whole suit is pressurized. Right. The suit becomes effectively a, a balloon, really. Um, and it has typical suits. The, day, the ones I grew up with had a, a position it wanted to be in, and any time you move that, change that position, you actually change the pressure in the suit. So the suit is wanting to go back to its original position, which means you've got work to do there before you ever start doing what you're sent to do. And so that's that's um, was always a challenge. And those were the things we had to figure out, wearing spacesuits, flying the zero-G plane, going underwater at our neutral buoyancy tank at Marshall, and trying those things out uh, to find out what the limits would be. Twenty twenty three is the fiftieth anniversary of the launch of Skylab. The U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama, is celebrating with the Summer of Skylab, a series of presentations, educational panels, and celebrity events taking place through November of 2023. Visit rocketcenter.com for more information. You were brought on specifically for Skylab. Exactly. At that time, we called it Apollo Applications Program. Uh, what Von Brown and uh, Dr. Uh, Mueller in headquarters had decided was they were going to take the third stage of a Saturn V rocket and convert it into a space station because, hey, we planned to go to the moon three times more, and we canceled all that. We had three rockets sitting around. Why not look at trying to how could we use that how could we use that hardware and make something uh, better for uh, out of that? And so it made sense that uh, a space station would give us exposure uh, in a low Earth orbit where we could get back down to the ground pretty quickly, but learn how long a person could operate uh, in a microgravity environment. So that's why the space station was created. We were going to use the third stage of the Saturn V, uh, which had hydrogen in it and oxygen in the, in the tank below, and we were going to uh, uh, evacuate all the uh, all the gases, and then we would literally move in and set up housekeeping inside this tank, <laughs> as uh, Von Braun had envisioned that it might be on the way to Mars, uh, that you were actually doing this outfitting. Uh, and then common sense uh, held, and we realized, hey, there may be some residual hydrogen somewhere, and you just hate to throw a switch in there that would be bad. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we uh, we went with the the dry workshop, so we could outfit it on the ground. We had the, we had the uh, S four B, the third stage available, 
So we went ahead and, and, um, and developed that uh, into uh, the vehicle that it turned out to be. The other areas that I was involved in was a layout. We, we knew that uh, we had a certain amount of space. The nice thing about Skylab was it was so much space, all that volume inside the, the uh, liquid hydrogen tank, empty liquid hydrogen right. tank. Uh, but you could put up all sorts of things. So we, we literally took um, um, flooring that was planned to be used for the WIT workshop, the, the AAP version, which was an open grid, we kept that and used it for a ceiling and flow, and that let air flow back, back and forth through that. One of the things I was directly involved in um, was this, we had a sleep compartment uh, for the astronauts, and we'd found out already that on uh, Apollo that one or two of the guys that flew on Apollo as they were about to go to sleep at night would have a feeling that they were falling and they'd wake up, they'd bring them back up so now they're awake again and they try to get back to sleep and go through that cycle. So one of the things we did on, um, uh, on Skylab was we, we had uh, a little compartment for each person to sleep in, which if you walked into it was vertical, but there's no up or down in space, so right. that was okay. We had a framework, a metal tubular framework and we sewed material, soft material, which was flame-proof, uh, into a made a bag for them to uh, lean uh, uh, to, to sleep in and uh, and be restrained. And you had a kind of a strap to keep you from floating up. To solve the problem with the with the drifting off to sleep, we made a little tiny little pillow at the back where the head would be, and we made a little netting, a little uh, lightweight see-through netting that pulled the head back so there was just a little bit of pressure on the back of the head and then took care of the problem. We didn't <laughs> have that problem again after that. Right. Get used to sleeping in gravity when you're not. It's kind Well, of... they say it's really good sleep. <laughs> really? <laughs> you, you stop and think about it. One of the things that came out of uh, working in space was we learned about of what was called the null body position. And it turns out that when we uh, relax in space that the body goes to a kind of semi-ape type position with your shoulders up, your arms are floating up a little bit, your legs are slightly bent, the knees are slightly bent, and your feet are pointing down and your skull tends to look down. So one of the, the things that we did when we were doing layouts of, uh, for, for example, experiments, and that's where my work was really done is the experiments that were on Skylab, uh, we would have to position the human to see how they were going to work the best in that work site. Uh, and we found out, well, we, we can't use what you would do on the ground. Uh, we had to throw 1472 out. It didn't do any good for us because we knew our feet were going to be pointed down, so we had to have a framework that held the feet down. Uh, li likewise, with the arms, the arms are floating up there, so we put some of the switches up higher than we would have done otherwise. And what we found out about was that uh, a human in space, uh, if you were asked a human like we would do here to bend over and pick something up off the floor, we have gravity working for us to pull us down. In space, in a microgravity environment, you don't have that. So the, all the gut muscles really, really have to work to pull you over. And it didn't take long for those to start spasming and cramping. You don't want a chair up there. We didn't even have a chair at the dining room table. 
effectively had a very special shoe that had a triangle shape in it in the bottom of it and you could you could put that shoe into a cutout that was had the same dimensions and twist the foot a little bit and it would lock the shoe in so we had that at the table down the uh, for the table at uh, the table and also you could use it in all the grid grid work uh, it was exactly the same as uh, cut out as the grid work uh, then we could also use uh, thigh restraints that were adjustable just to hold your thigh so you didn't float off. Another thing of interest, uh, you actually grow when you go to space and height. Really? Yeah, and people don't realize that. Think about the body on the ground. You have open sinuses. You typically don't have any fluid in there if you're not having a cold or out here with some of our bugs we got around this place. <laughs> um, and uh, also, you've got liquids in some parts of the body and not in others. Uh, the body in space wants to go to the same pressure throughout throughout the whole body, the same fluid pressure. Uh, and so the fluids in the body will go to the sinuses and fill up the sinuses. And uh, so everybody, after a day or two, feels like uh, they've got a cold. And, and when they're eating, the food doesn't taste very good. So we send a lot of Tabasco sauce and, and liquid <laughs> pepper and such up there to make food taste a little bit better. But also your disc in your spine absorb fluid. It's a soft tissue. It absorbs fluid, and you literally grow anywhere from one to two inches in height wow. while you're in space. Now, how much does that recompress when you get back? Well, it all recompresses, <laughs> and it's a pretty tough week, I understand, not, not having gone through it. But the guys have talked to me that have done that. It's just a really rough week for about a week before it all squashes back out. <laughs> My job in this program was to look at 30 of the corollary experiments that were on Skylab and uh, oversee those to make sure the crew would work with them, that they were safe for the crew to work with, and uh, and that the crew understood how it worked so they didn't mess it up. Uh, it's safety for the human, safety for the machine. We've got to look out for the machine too. Right. So uh, my job was to kind of pull those requirements together and we did a document off of the experiments first, and then after Skylab was over with, I pulled together everybody's requirements that had been created that we knew about and had been had peer review. They had to have peer review. People at Houston had to buy into them because, again, we were designing this first time it ever happened. Marshall right. was designing for astronauts. That was strange. That was <laughs> supposed to happen. We were supposed to design for rockets. But... Um, so anyway, we, uh, I put those together in a document which was called uh, Marshall Standard 512, and then we did an A version. That set of requirements uh, was taken to NASA headquarters, proposed as a NASA-level document. Uh, we were told it came from the wrong center, so it can't came, come from Marshall, but why don't you get to work with John- Johnson Space Center and the two of you get together so I um, combined with Dr. Uh, Jim Lewis, who was head of the Human Factors Group at, down at Houston. And we combined, we had six, uh, six groups of people come together at different times and review what we had and propose new requirements that went in there. So about 85% of what we had in Marshall Standard 512 went into the new document with maybe 15% more things added to it. And um, that became 
NASA standard 3000, which is the Bible for human factors engineering for NASA. Still today? Well, what's interesting is our friends down in Houston didn't like it came out of the wrong organization down there. <laughs> there there's there's a been. quiet competition, but, yeah, but it does exist. It shouldn't, it shouldn't have been the human factors group at JSC. It should be the, the medical world. So they took, the medical world took five or 3,000 and made it a sub-piece to a book that they called 3001, and, uh, and they added some uh, biomedical requirements, or really not requirements so much as statements, and they call that NASA Standard 3001. But um, it is NASA Standard 3000 with some fluff, and yeah, it still stands. And so my, my involvement was uh, that I was recognized uh, with a medal uh, for that work. We didn't know at the time what we were doing, and so we just kept uh, bumping into things till we got the right, <laughs> the right fit. And then we wrote that down and said, this, "We're going with this." For example, we found out uh, handrails outside in a spacesuit. Well, so a spacesuit weighs 150 so pounds, and you're in it, and you've got a mass of uh, astronauts usually smaller, maybe 150 pounds, so you're 300 pounds, and you're jerking on a handrail. How much? Uh, how much do you have to bolt that sucker down before you break it? And we found out a strange number, but 187 pounds per square inch is what the requirement <laughs> is, so you don't break the, the ties, the, the, the handheld, handrail ties. <laughs> and we also said, well, you've got to find these things, so let's color them. So we made them yellow. So if you ever go look at, um, go back and look at the movie Gravity or something like that, You'll always see the handrails are yellow. The rest of it's white or silver. You've got to be able to find your path. What's safe to grab and what's not. Exactly right. And you don't want to grab one that's silver. (laughs) (laughs) You may leave with it. Right. (laughs) So anyway, we put out a document that was a lessons learned type document for humans. Yeah. Uh, And that's still used today. Uh, It's still excellent. Uh, We actually made a movie. Uh, really? Yeah. Um, I, I was the technical lead on that. So <laughs> I said, in, in a previous life, when I was at NC State as a, as a, a married uh, guy with a child, I had to work outside of the range of the school. So I worked for WRAL-TV in Raleigh <laughs> and was a, a operations guy involved with that part of it. So I, I knew a little bit about making a movie. So we did a movie about what it's like to live in space, what the things you've got to think about, just the things we've been talking about. We right. made a movie of that, and that's available, and we have it available here. At, really? Out, out here at Space and Rocket Center. That's fascinating. Uh, uh, the title of it's Think Zero G. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it, it, it's really hokey. This, the music was terrible. Uh, <laughs> And it's so faked. But it was engineers. It was just en- old just, engineering guys trying to talk. And right. We don't do that well. <laughs> Not for this sort of thing. I think you're doing great. <laughs> when the, as the astronauts came back, because there, you know, there were multiple crews, uh, as they came back, then did you, did you debrief with them? And- we went uh, over to Johnson Space Center, and we sat in on the debriefings. And, uh, and we took notes, and we made corrections to things that we might want to send up on the next mission. And uh, that was 
That's pretty standard. You recall that we had a major problem when Skylab launched, right. and we lost the um, uh, the shield, the meteoroid debris shield, and we lost one of the uh, solar rays. The first crew had to work their way back out of that to get the temperature temperatures down from 135 back down to 75 or so degrees, and then uh, try to get power up. And so they were able to do that. But uh, they also had another mission that was a standard mission they were scheduled to do, certain science, certain things they were supposed to be doing. Um, and so they had to do all that as well. So they worked much longer and harder than we had ever anticipated. The second crew had to continue some of that. They still had their mission. It was a longer mission. They had their mission to do. Plus, they had things. They had to put up the solar or uh, the uh, uh, twin pole sail to try to get the temperature down. So as the, uh, as the little um, parasol was failing, we had to put one over the top of it to beat the heat back, uh, keep the heat um, back and so we could live in it. And there was that kind of work. Well, when the third crew went up, they had their scheduled mission, but they didn't have any of this other trying to repair the vehicle. So there was, was no excitement. Right. And so, but the, the ground guys had gotten so used to these first two crews working a lot much longer and heavier and putting up with it, even and their missions were shorter, that they put up the guy, the crew put up with it for short periods of time, and they were coming home. Well, now these guys are up for 84 days. That's three months. It's a long and, time. And uh, they are being told uh, they, they've got to uh, keep working at that same pace. And they got about halfway through and said, time out, time out. Let's take a break. Let's all sit down and look about what you're doing. And right. so the ground, the ground guy said, you're right. We're still trying to work to the same timeline we were working before, not the one you had planned to work. So as soon as they went back to the one they planned to work, life was good. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, you, you'll hear sometimes people say that well, they, they were uh, mutinied. Well, they did. They were just working to what they were trained to do. And, uh, and that particular crew were really good human factors people. They really were. They, cr they critiqued things, so you, you'll hear the, that the third crew fussed about everything. Well, they didn't. They were giving you comments, design input to bring back and, and make it whatever the next vehicle we were going to fly at the time was going to be the shuttle. They were uh, helping us learn. They were. And uh, there's a little book, uh, I think it's called House in Space, where uh, there was a fellow, whoever wrote that, must have sat in on the debriefings or had access to the debriefing uh, transcripts. And, um, and he keeps commenting in the book about all they did was fuss, fuss, fuss. We loved it. It was right up our alley. And we took that knowledge and applied it to the International Space Station when those two of those that third crew formed their own company and went to work for Boeing as a human factors design group <laughs> called CAMUS, C-A-M-U-S. Uh, and they worked here in Huntsville uh, when we were designing... The, what became the International Space Station started out as, we called it Space Station Freedom. And, uh, and so that, that was exactly what we, we were after. One of these guys, Bill Pogue, wrote a book, how do, you, how do You Go to the Bathroom in Space? And it's a 
fun little book to read, but he's got a lot of critique in there, which is good. Right. It really tells the public what it was like to live in space and things you got to think about you don't have to think about. So yeah. uh, as a human factors person, I love those guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to publish the requirements document, and I did that. <clears throat> and when it was finally released, they moved me over to uh, the Marshall's neutral buoyancy tank, and we haven't talked about that. Marshall had a very large water tank that grew out of, uh, it's like the third iteration. We found out that if you put a person in a space suit and put him underwater, uh, if you handle the drag, the water drag, and that's not a problem for you, and you balanced out the human who's in a, wearing a balloon and the piece of equipment, which is heavy, so you've got flotation material on it, you, want, you can bring it to the point where the, the human and the machine and the item neither rise nor sink or have a preferred orientation, so they effectively like in space. Uh, Dr. Von Braun and company built a tank, and uh, it was 40 feet deep, it was 75 feet in diameter, and held 1.3 million gallons of water, which was purified, clear, and the only reason you could tell if you were in a spacesuit that you were even in the water was you'd see bubbles coming up from the divers. <laughs> so we could run a full mission, a six-hour mission underwater and do everything we had to do. The t- we built, we had a full Skylab mock-up underwater and all those things that they were trying to do, the cutting the uh, strap on the uh, on the solar array panel, putting out the, uh, the uh, sail, the parasol or the sail, the uh, twin pole sail, all that was done underwater before we ever flew, and and the, the crew worked it out. So all that had happened, and, and it, the tank, the neutral buoyancy tank, was the tool that really saved the mission, the people that were working in it. And uh, so anyway, now we built a, a, a cargo bay, the sh- uh, payload bay of the shuttle, and we have built a arm that will manipulate like the arm on the shuttle would do. It can move things around underwater. Uh, we built a aft flight deck and, uh, and a mid deck to stick on the end of this uh, bay. And uh, so you literally had a mini, a partial full size, but very low fidelity shuttle in the water. So with that, then we could start doing these simulations. Well, they moved me over to be in charge of all the tests that were done in the tank from 1975 to 1983. In 1984, I was I was sent over to begin the, uh, I was on the task team that started the International Space Station. In that period from 75 to 83, we had a whole lot of tests that were going on that we were trying things out. We were still learning, like the question came up, uh, how much mass can a human move under uh, in space? What is, is there some maximum that you just can't push? Because we found out on Skylab that the crew literally could move the space station inside the space station. They could move the space station. Really? Like just they could all push on a wall and get the whole station well, to move Well, we, we had two panels where the crew bounced between TO-13, which experiment came out of Langley Research Center. There were two panels that were low device panels, and the crew was zipped back and forth between them, and they hit the panel. And we would then measure how much it moved the Skylab. The one that the public doesn't know much about was that Conrad uh, decided he wanted to see if, in fact, you could uh, uh, run, you could have artificial gravity in space. And we had a set of 
very large white ring lockers that were up in the upper part of the orbital workshop where we stowed stuff and that was used for different missions. But they were just white covered panels. Well, he got up there with his fingers and he started pulling himself along, going around this curvature. And first thing you know, he's standing up and now he's running. He's running around the ring lockers. <laughs> and White says, well, that looks like fun. So he gets over there and he pulls himself and he's running around the ring so lockers. Kind of, and so they're kind of, they're able to do this through like a centrifugal force kind of thing? The ground kind of got upset because they didn't know what was going on. We didn't have video in those days. Right. <laughs> we didn't have, you couldn't see what was going on. And, uh, and the ground started saying, whoa, this isn't right. We're getting, uh, we're getting motion here in the station. Uh, we need to talk, talk you, to the crew. It was starting to spin. <laughs> it was. It was just starting to shift, like a little bit of rotation. And so uh, so Pete had to fess up what he was doing <laughs> so that we stopped that. But it did prove that a human could move the space station. So the question was, how much can we move? So underwater, we put together a, a ring that was would fit inside our payload bay of the shuttle, and we filled it. We, trapped, we had these great big plastic containers, filled them full of water and strapped them all together. And we got up to 23,500 pounds of this mass. And we had a guy, one guy in a spacesuit on two handrails, push that down a corridor and put it in a receiver. The only thing that limited that person to putting more weight in it was he couldn't see. That's as far <laughs> as he could see and see what he had to do. So we never reached the limit. Wow. So, but we know that, we know for sure he pushed 23,500 pounds. Around. <laughs> it takes a while. You don't rush into it. Right. And you best be thinking about it when you hit the other end about getting it stopped. And that's the trick. <laughs> In space, you don't worry about gravity. You worry about moments of inertia. So once you get something going, you best be planning on um, how you stabilize it and how you control it and then how you stop it. Uh, Otherwise, it's going to change orbits. That's wonderful. After the International Space Station, um, where where did you end up and and retire from? Oh, I retired from the Marshall Space Flight Center. I uh, on the station, I worked all the way through until we uh, built the nodes. There were three nodes on the station. One was built by Boeing here, and two were built by the Italians, the Alenia um, company, Italian Space Agency. And I was the coordinator for the human factors people. I, I worked that part, and um, and then I uh, I chose to uh, pull out. It, it was starting to not be as much fun as it was. But I stayed on. I, I, I left. Uh, my friends down in Houston asked me to come back as a contractor, so I did that for five years and worked continuing on that. And that moved into the uh, Constellation program, which was going to fly another rocket like the Saturn V. And it's what we call today the SLS, Space Launch System. The Intuitive Planetarium is an immersive digital dome theater experience that offers educational astronomy shows, live entertainment, and exciting theater experiences. The only one of its kind in the Southeast, the Intuitive Planetarium at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center offers an 8K digital planetarium and digital dome experience. Additional time tickets are required for Intuitive Planetarium experiences. Visit rocketcenter.com for tickets today.
been a real pleasure to, to get you. to know you and an honor. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you spending the time and, and doing what you do for the, uh, the Space and Rocket Center and the foundation here. And, and well, thank you. I will share with you, they've, uh, just, they pulled me into these. Uh, we have the 50th anniversary of Skylab all this uh, summer. And I've been asked to be involved in that. And that's been really fun to working with uh, Rebecca Head and with Kay Taylor yeah. uh, to make that happen. Now, people don't realize that that was our first space station. We learned so much. We got, uh, we found out humans could, in fact, live and exist uh, in space that high up. Yeah. And look at us today. If we do it on a daily basis, right? You got enough money, you can get a ride up. <laughs> what about you? You ever want to go up? Well, how long have you got? <laughs> have I got a moment? We got a moment. Okay. I told you I was a test subject for uh, some of these things. Uh, one of them was Marsh for NASA standard. Well, it was an experiment, M131. It was a rotating literature experiment to try to determine motion sickness, uh, <laughs> why some of the astronauts get sick in space and why they didn't. And I was a ground-based test subject for that, and uh, they had a chair that they sat in uh, which rotated, and... Uh, you had to do head motions, forward, back, left, and right, and you did that, forward, back, left, and right, as the chair is spinning, and... Uh, this doesn't sound fun. That uh, wasn't, and, uh, <laughs> and then think about as you're flying the zero-G plane, and you're doing that over those parabolas, uh, which I did, and uh, I, I, the, the uh, Naval Aerospace Medical Institute had established five levels of motion sickness, the first being stomach awareness, the fifth one being frank illness. <laughs> and, and I would bypass the middle three. Even when I was flying the bird, we had to do it, but I just had to do that. So I spent three days in a rotating room down at uh, Naval Airspace Medical Institute oh. doing those head motions in a, in a room that's spinning around to condition the odorless so that I would not be sick on the K-bird. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so, that was, that was, so would you go up? Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I already know my limits. <laughs> Most people don't know. You won't know till you get there, right? Right, right. I know. <laughs> I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for. I'm flying up to the stars. I'm gonna. Explore this time and I'll let you know what